Now this sutta has finished with all the preliminaries for concentrated meditation. And now we come to the explanation of the first meditative absorption, the first jhana. It might be useful to say at this point that anyone who reads the discourses of the Buddha as they have been transmitted to us in the Pali Canon on which Theravada tradition bases its teaching cannot help but see that the meditative absorptions are part of the path just like the hindrances are part of our path trying to minimize them just as the guarding of the senses the mindfulness and the clear comprehension all the things that we have already heard from this sutta are part of this pathway if we really want a spiritual teaching that will bring joy and happiness to us we need every part we can't pick and choose because obviously the Buddha was able to show the whole path and picking and choosing a bit here and a bit there because this one might be difficult or the other one somebody says isn't necessary is personal views and opinions it's much safer and much more productive to just adhere to what the Buddha said and it's available to anyone particularly in English it's been translated more than once so this is not the only discourse which talks about the meditative absorptions there are dozens of them and I'm stressing the point because of the fact of what I have been told by several uh, students when they actually accidentally touch upon the meditative absorptions and don't know exactly what it is and then try to find some uh, guidance and haven't been successful which is a pity but never mind that aspect I just like to really emphasize that all one has to do is read the Buddha's discourses and having read them one can of course then try on one's own which is not that easy but possible and try and find some guidance so we'll see what the Buddha said about it he says when one knows that the five hindrances have left now this is also very important the five hindrances are so to say attacked in the first jhana they have no chance of arising but as you can see from this we have to sit down without them that they are within us still is a second matter they are there but 
we mustn't allow them to arise. Again, we see, we have to sit down with love and compassion, without any doubt, without any sensual desire, without sloth and torpor, obviously, and without restlessness and worry. So, those hindrances have to be put aside at the time of sitting down for meditation. And it's a natural thing that one actually aims for that. As one sits down in meditation, if any of these arise, the mind is agitated. There's no way one can meditate. But if one sits down with loving-kindness, compassion, contentment, and has a determination to concentrate without result thinking, then those other things do not have a chance to arise, and one feels free. That's why meditation should bring to anyone who practices it, whether it's done well or not, doesn't matter, should bring some feeling of being at ease. Because when the five hindrances have left one, even temporarily, ease arises. So when one knows that the five hindrances have left, gladness arises. And from gladness comes delight. And from the delight in the mind, the body becomes tranquil. Now, Gladness and delight in this case are on a worldly level, not yet on a meditative level. There are several different words for these in Pali. In English we are a little more limited. The same ones have to be used. But that feeling of ease that I just addressed, that's the gladness. And the feeling in the mind that all is well and the body becomes stable and with a tranquil body one feels joy and with joy in the mind one is concentrated this is a point which should never be forgotten by anyone who wishes to meditate joy in the mind is a necessary prerequisite for meditation. Without it, meditation hasn't got a chance. Now, the joy is addressed here as being a result of a stable and tranquil body, a feeling of stability, a feeling of tranquility in the body, which arises from the mind which feels glad that it is able to meditate, start the meditation. The joy of that. Joy can arise out of many different causes. The joy that one can actually follow a path, the joy that one is sitting well, that there's a well-being in the body, any of these, just that the joy arises. If one doesn't have that joy, particularly 
the joy of the spiritual practice, meditation falls by the wayside every time one thinks one has something more important to do. And that happens frequently, to say the least. Without joy, there's no concentration. It is something that is often not even mentioned. The Buddha mentions it continuously. He says one can only meditate if one's feeling comfortable in body and mind. And one can only concentrate if the mind is joyful. If one really knows why one is doing this and really appreciates one's own efforts, all that brings joy. Whichever way one can arouse joy, just so that it's there. That's through the worldly joy. It's not yet the meditative joy. And as I said, we have different words in Pali. This one is Pamoja. The meditative one is Sukha. And there are other words also. But as you can see, when we sit down without the five hindrances, because we have to, there's no way we can sit there and be angry and try to meditate. There's no way we can have sloth and torpor and try and meditate. We, if we have desire for anything, well, we're not going to meditate. We're going to be filled with desire. So all those things are left aside. The whole mind and body system that we consist of feels concentrated. It feels as if it's pulled together. And there is this feeling of beginning something which has great potential and offers the, the greatest thing that we can have. So with joy in the mind, one is concentrated. And then, being thus detached from sense desires, from unwholesome states, one enters and remains in the first jhana. The word detached is constantly misunderstood because sometimes it doesn't say detached from sense desires and detached from unwholesome states. Sometimes it, say, it states <coughs> that one can enter first jhana due to detachment. And then things are um, thought to mean, that's thought to mean that one has to remove oneself from the ordinary um, way of life that one has and remove oneself from people and live in the forest for a long time. It's helpful to live in the forest, but it's not necessary. Detachment here means nothing other than having no sense desire at the time and no unwholesome states, which is just a repetition of not having any of the five hindrances. Sense desire is the first hindrance, and the other four are just lumped together as unwholesome states. That's all it means, being free at that time. Being free of them. Really gives a feeling of, gives already a feeling of lightening the burden. 
enters and remains in the first jhana, which is this initial and sustained application. Unfortunately, those two words are constantly wrongly translated. They are called in Pali Vitaka Vichara, and here again they're translated as thinking and pondering. Every meditator knows if he thinks and ponders, he can't get into first jhana. Vitaka Vichara also means that. It's got two meanings. It means also thinking and pondering, but it also means initial and sustained application to the meditation subject. So that's what one has in first jhana, initial and sustained application. Born of detachment, filled with delight and joy. Now we come to the meditative aspect of delight and joy. They both arise simultaneously. And delight in this instance is the delightful sensation. And the joy comes with it. And at this time it's called sukha. And we will see that we will use it afterwards for the second meditative absorption. In the first one, it's delightful. The delightful sensation. And as I've already explained and will repeat now, especially for those of you who have only come for the second part of the course, it can have many different ways of showing itself. It doesn't always show in the same way, and it also doesn't always show in the same strength. It can be quite overwhelming, and it can be quite mild. And it can be a feeling of lightness as opposed to heavy. It can be a feeling of floating. It can be a feeling of rising up. It can be a feeling of expansion and extension, tingling. It can be a feeling of hairs uh, rise up. Any one of these and others, but always delightful. And because it's delightful, one knows that that is where one goes with one's attention. At least one assumes that one knows. Because that state is also translated as interest. One becomes interested. If one should stay with the breath, one is, so to say, missing the boat. All of the methods which we are using, every single one of them, are nothing but a key to put in the keyhole, unlock the door, and get in there, inside. And there we become acquainted with what is really our inner condition. And as we become acquainted with our true inner condition, we will find out that all of the stuff that we're carrying around in the mind is nothing but extraneous. It's got nothing to do with our true inner condition. It's been put there into our mind through our desires, our rejections, our reactions, our thoughts, our plans, our hopes, our ideas and viewpoints. But it's not our true inner condition. That we can actually find as we are concentrated enough to get inside and experience in the first instance the delightful state 
that is created through the sensations. We also need to know that those sensations are always with us. We are not making them appear. That would be quite a feat. They are always there. We are just not able to get at them because of all the things we do with our mind and heart. And when we have that opportunity and that ability to get to those sensations anytime we wish, much of our sensual desires, much of our craving disappears because we already have what we're craving for. And we have it without having to relate to some outer circumstance which we have to make so in such a way that it actually complies with our wishes, which very often doesn't work. So it should actually make an enormous difference in one's life. That it all does it doesn't always do that is due to two uh, causes. The first one is one doesn't continue the regular meditation, doesn't get to that state often enough, and doesn't have the insight from it, doesn't understand it well enough. Even though it may be strong, one still doesn't relate to it in the proper way. This is the light and joy, born of detachment, and the detachment is from the unwholesome state. One so suffuses, drenches, fills, and irradiates the body that if there is no spot in the entire body that is untouched by this delight and joy, born of detachment. So you can see that the whole thing comes down to that if there's only a small spot that one feels this delight, one has to enlarge it. One should have the whole body suffused, drenched, and filled with that delight. And from this you can already understand that it is bodily sensation. Obviously, it has, it's not the kind of bodily sensation that we have in ordinary daily life. It is similar to some very pleasant touch contact that we can have, but it's not the same. It's far more subtle and far more satisfying because we can actually be, so to say, in charge. Once we've learned to meditate properly, we can get at it any time that we wish and keep it as long as we wish and that also means to become master of the jhanas to get in any time one wants to to stay as long as one wishes to get go from any of the jhanas to any of the others not in their succession but first one has to learn the succession from one to three to eight and also to come out whenever one wishes. Then if one is master of the jhanas, one can jump from any one of them to any other. 
But that's only a later stage. First, let's get in, and then let's get going. This is what the Buddha said in another discourse. Now I'll read out what the Buddha said in the one we are actually uh, concerned with, the Potapada Sutta. Again, it all goes along that way, having done away with the uh, hindrances, having guarded the sense doors, having had contentment, being mindful and um, have um, clear comprehension. Having reached the first jhana, one remains in it, and whatever sensations of lust that were there previously disappear. At that time, there is present a true but subtle perception of the light and happiness. Now, the first thing that we learn here is that lust, disappears, obviously, at the time that we are concerned with the lightful sensation in the body, surely lust cannot arise. We are already contented with that, what we have. Lust can still arise outside of meditation, but the more insight we get from the meditative path, the less danger of that there is. And the more often we have the opportunity and the ability to get into those states. Lust is usually the word for sexual desire. And it is our strongest sensual desire. And therefore, plays havoc with many people's lives. It makes things sometimes extremely uncomfortable. So, being able to have a remedy can be one of the most important things in one's life. Here, in the first jhana, we only address the time of the jhana. However, If insight arises and we know that all that we're craving for already exists within and proving it to ourselves over and over again, we have a great chance of letting go. Probably not completely, but to such an extent that it isn't a bother anymore. The next thing that is mentioned is there's a a true but subtle perception of the light and happiness. True means that we are actually experiencing it. And subtle, it's far more subtle than anything that we experience in the worldly life. The first four jhanas are called the fine or subtle form jhanas. And the reason for that is that we can actually, in the worldly life, experience similar states. 
but not as subtle. So we do know the lightful sensations. They're far more gross, they're dependent. We cannot arrange them when we want to. And we usually, after having had them, lose the satisfaction and the contentment. That doesn't happen here. Because of their subtle nature, the satisfaction from them remains. And also, because one knows one can enter into them anytime one wants to. So the subtle sensations, and we will see as we progress to second, third, and fourth jhana, that they too have their equivalent in our daily lives, but on a much grosser level, and far less satisfying, particularly also because we know that they're so short-lived, and because we know we have to again do something in order to get them back, whereas here all we have to do is sit down and be concentrated. And actually, being concentrated is the greatest benefit that we can give to our mind because it eliminates all the unnecessary discursive thinking, all the hopes and the plans and the worries and the fears, the likes and the dislikes. It's all eliminated. The mind is concentrated. And we can't do anything better for ourselves. It's the one way of being truly at ease. So we have only benefits from this. At that time there is present a true but subtle perception of delight and happiness born of detachment and one becomes one who is conscious of this delight and happiness and puts one's attention on it. In this way some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. And this is that training, said the Lord. Now, if you remember, Protopala asked him about the extinction of our consciousness and then asked him how consciousness arises and how one becomes unconscious. And he had four different ways that he had heard that this happens. <coughs> and the Buddha said, no, that's not what happens. The Buddha said, once perceptions arise and cease owing to a cause and conditions, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. What is this training? So in the first instance, he gave the training to get the mind so purified that one can actually get into first jhana. And now he talks about the first jhana being the training and so the perception subtle perception of delight and happiness arises and when one goes out of the jhana ceases. So this is the first part of his answer to Potapada's question. How do perceptions arise and cease? Is one conscious because the self is a perception and all those things which are quite impossible that the uh, Brahmins or ascetics put the consciousness into one or something that um, the uh, um, devas put it into one 
And so he shows this is the first step where one can say these are perceptions which arise through training and then also, of course, cease again because one doesn't stay in the meditation uh, constantly. Then the Buddha gives a, um, a simile for experiencing this first jhana. And it's an interesting one because it tells a story about what soap was like in the time of the Buddha. They didn't have pieces of soap like we have today. It was totally different. And so it's also a historical picture that we get, which uh, brings a little interest into it. But it also gives the simile. Just as a skilled bathman or his assistant, so bath attendant, I guess, and his assistant, kneading the soap powder, which he has sprinkled with water, forms from it, in a metal dish, a soft lump, so that the ball of soap powder becomes one homogeneous mass bound with oil, so that nothing escapes. So, one suffuses, drenches, fills, and illuminates the body, so that no spot remains untouched. So, the simile given, one has soap powder, one sprinkles water on it, and then forms a lump, and that lump has to be totally suffused with the water, so that it sticks together, and that it's homogeneous mass, and that's the same way that one should feel it everywhere. Feel the delightful sensation everywhere. Suffused, drenched, filled, and illuminated by it. The factors of the first jhana all are antidotes for our hindrances. But it is of the greatest importance to remember that we have to sit down without them. So what does that mean? That means we need to watch our mind outside of meditation. If we don't watch the mind, have mindfulness of mind content and do not allow it to race all over the place trying to figure out how one could become happy with getting one's desires fulfilled but remains totally attentive to one's physical action voluntary or impulsive then the mind has already had a start on being without the hindrances. And when the mind sits down without the hindrances, there's absolutely no reason why one shouldn't get concentrated. As soon as the mind starts thinking about something, like, I want to be concentrated, I should get it, maybe I should do something else, of course, that spoils it all. Letting oneself be, that's all. Without all those ideas, without all the intervening difficulties, none of that has any real truth in it. It's all mind-made and man-made. 
the real truth looks entirely different. And we get nearer to the real truth through the meditative space. Obviously, there's more to be done. But at least that brings us to a level of consciousness which shows us there is a different consciousness within me other than the one I know. At the end of any jhana, but also at the end of any so-called good meditation, one should do three things. The first one, to realize that as one stops the meditation, the pleasant state dissolves. To watch it dissolve and recognize that too is impermanent. That's the first thing. And not just say it mechanically, because some of us have heard the word impermanent till it comes out of our ears, and so it becomes very mechanical. Yes, everything's impermanent. And then we don't even know what it means anymore. But to watch it disappear, Not just the letter, the spirit of the teaching means experiencing it oneself. Wisdom comes from the understood experience and from nothing else. We can read a thousand books, we can repeat a thousand stanzas, never will wisdom come unless we have an understood experience. And we all have experiences constantly. If we were to understand them correctly, we'd all be enlightened already. It's our misunderstanding of our experiences. Everybody experiences a constant impermanence of the breath. And yet, has dozens or hundreds of ideas about his or her future does not understand the experience of the impermanence of each breath. If there's only this moment, there is no future, there is no past, everything is now, and we are completely transparent. We have no solidity. We only look as if we do. We all have the experience of the impermanence of our thoughts, that they arise actually without our wanting them to arise. Because we very much like to be concentrated and yet we are thinking. And yet we believe that it's me thinking. I own those thoughts. One should investigate that. Usually when one has ownership of something, one also has some jurisdiction. Have a look at the thoughts. And then, all the ones that you have owned, they're all gone, aren't they? And where is you that owned them? Gone with it? Or owning new ones? Constantly owning a new one. So, which one is you then? The one you had before or the one you're going to have after? 
what is going to happen to that you every time the thought disappears. And there may be a gap between the disappearance of the thought and the reappearance of the next one. I mean, that does happen. One doesn't have to think constantly. So where's you then in that gap? Where has it disappeared to? Is it taking a holiday? And how are you going to get it back? Well, by thinking, of course. The misunderstood experience is the cause for our delusion. So if we understand the experience correctly, that delusion no longer happens. So the first thing, after the jhana or after any good meditation, to watch the dissolution of the state and see its impermanence. And maybe even at that time, refer to the impermanence of one's thoughts, emotions, of one's breath, of one's whole body. The next thing to do is to recapitulate. How did I get in there? What was my method, the mode of getting in there? Now, if I said already, methods are methods by any name and have no intrinsic value. The one that works is the one to use. It very often happens that people get attached to a method, maybe because it works for them, and then they think everybody else, it needs to work for them too, and it's the only method. But that's wrong thinking. We all have a little different underlying tendencies, stronger in one way and weaker in another. So some method might work for one person and some for another. So I've already told some of you to use loving-kindness meditation, not the breath, because those that are told this to can't get very well concentrated on the breath. It doesn't matter. It's perfectly all right. The breath is going to be with you until you die, so one doesn't really have to pay attention to it if one can't get concentrated. If we use loving-kindness meditation, if one can do it well, then a feeling arises, a sensation, a sensation usually in the middle of the chest, wherever. And it's very common that it is the sensation of warmth, very pleasant. It can also be a sensation of warmth and joy. As soon as that arises, not to continue with the loving-kindness meditation, but to put one's full attention on that delightful sensation of warmth or joy or both. The one that is stronger will be the physical one, so that will be the first one to put one's attention on. It makes no difference how we get there, just so we get there. Having got there, we can then truthfully say, I'm meditating. Until then, all we can say is we are using a method so that we can eventually meditate. That distinction is hardly ever made. It's always made by the Buddha. 
So, loving kindness is one way of getting in there. There are people who get to it through the sleeping. Particularly, if they do the sleeping, not so much spot after spot, but using the fan method, which is described in my book, When the Iron Eagle Flies. And if you have never heard of it, or have forgotten it, look it up. <coughs> it's essentially exactly the same method. It's just done a little more fluidly. So one doesn't jump from spot to spot, but goes smoothly. Using the mind like a slowly opening fan and touching a whole area. That one, very often, also the other one, the uh, part by part, very often brings enough concentration to arouse very pleasant sensations. If that should be the case, one can stop right then and there with the sleeping and go to the sensation. And as you've heard from the Buddha, to enlarge the sensation so that it's all through the body. If it might start in one spot. It's not difficult to enlarge. Another way some people get into it is through the casinos. I've already mentioned them. Color discs. If one is visually inclined, finds it very easy to conjure up a color and can make that into like a round plate, a disc, and stay with that and enlarge it and sit in it, that too leads to first jhana. In fact, casinos are only meant to lead to jhana. The same applies to being on the breath, of course, and getting the breath very fine, and then the sensation arises, and also the situation where a bright light appears. Having been on the breath, a bright light appears. And this bright light, I've already mentioned that last night, we can use to enlarge, to sit in it, just as with the casino, and having been in it for some time, not immediately, but for some time, the light sort of not only surrounds one, but it touches one, and the light, it becomes delightful, and the delightful sensation arises. There are sufficient possibilities. Now, it's not useful to try all of them in one sitting. But it is useful that if you feel that your loving-kindness meditation works very well for you, and you really feel something, that you use that. Or, if you spontaneously see colors, and they always come, they're always there, and you even find it a little difficult to get to the breath because the color is in the way. Use the color. If you get very concentrated on the sleeping, use that. It doesn't matter. All that matters is 
that you sit down already with the joyful understanding of the great potential that lies within you. Everyone who has patience and perseverance can get to the journey. It is the natural way for the mind to go. In fact, practically everyone who comes to meditation, probably never having heard of the journey, has that underlying yearning for them. Doesn't know what the word jhana means, doesn't know what the word meditation talks to mean. These are just words, they're not important, but we have to give some name to it. But the inner yearning is there for that release and release from the thinking mind. And that inner yearning sometimes is unconscious and sometimes conscious, quite open and understood. And that alone can tell us already that there is an inner knowing that such a thing is possible. And when people hear about it for the first time, that are not prejudiced, there are not prejudiced people around too, but that are not prejudiced, the mind usually says, Aha, I knew there was something, even though they haven't experienced it yet. Another thing that happens, not infrequently, is that when a person finally gets there, they remember that they've done it as a child. This is quite, it's more common than one would think. Small children do it spontaneously, four years and older. And when, of course, then... and sex and family and all that intervenes and everything is completely forgotten. One can't remember. But then, having had enough dukkha in one's adult life and having decided to come back to meditation and having been able to reach even that first dana, that memory returned. And this is quite interesting in a way, because when the Buddha was not the Buddha yet, but the Bodhisattva, Prince Siddhartha Gautama, left the palace, left his family, went into the forest to learn meditation. And he learned the first seven dramas from one teacher. He remembered that he had done that when he was 12 years old. Immediately when he reached the first drama, he knew and the story connected with that is that his father was King Sadodana, a king of a minor kingdom. And the uh, tradition is that the king turns the first sod when spring comes for the rice planting. And so the king took his 12-year-old son-in-law, and he was supposed to uh, also have one handle of the plow and the father the other one. So they were supposed to turn the first sod together. And when the time came for that, the boy was nowhere to be found. 
So he sent out one of his ministers to look for him. And the minister found him sitting under a tree, obviously meditating, totally transported. So he didn't like to uh, disturb him. He went back to the father and reported that. So the father said, all right, he'll do it himself. And then, of course, between the age of 12 and 29, the uh, prince indulged in all sensual gratification. And also married, had a, a little son, and finally decided the Dukkha of mankind needs to be addressed. And then he remembered when he went to the forest that he had done that. And it was very easy for him to learn the jhanas. I don't know whether it's easy for everyone who has done it as a child, but from the uh, personal experience I've had with people talking about it, it does seem so, that if one has done it as a child, it comes back more easily, if one finally gets to the first step of it. And some people can get to it quite easily, others have to work a little harder, it doesn't matter. The um, experience of the first runner does not, contrary to some opinions, personal opinions, produce attachment. The Buddha never talked about that. He never mentioned it. It's an idea. An idea which arises also in later commentary. For instance, the Visuddhimagga, which was written in the 5th century AD, which is um, like seven centuries after the Buddha's death. So um, there's uh, no mention by the Buddha of attachment to the Dharma. On the contrary, it produces something entirely different. It produces some vigor, the urgency to get on with it. Because one can see the enormous dif difference between the worldly mind and the worldly mind state, I should say, and the mind state when one is in a jhana. The difference is so enormous that urgency arises. Now, not for everyone, of course. There are people that haven't um, got enough insight to get the urgency, what most people do. But besides that, even if the urgency doesn't arise, something else arises for sure. Namely, the understanding that that can't be all that one can experience in meditation. Every intelligent person realizes that immediately. That one can't be meditating for the goal of delightful sensations. Although one's very happy to have them, one knows exactly that that can't be it. So one is very much interested in continuing. So that kind of opinion, which is often voiced, um, has no basis in fact at all. I find it somewhat difficult why people keep repeating it. 
that opinion. It's being repeated a lot. And uh, I can't quite see why that is so. The um, the only thing that would have any value, I mean, it's so um, far removed from ordinary people's thoughts that it doesn't even seem to enter, is that one thinks, having now that an elevated consciousness, one is enlightened. I have yet to meet anyone who has thought that. So that would be, of course, a wrong attachment. But I've never met anyone who thinks that. Because it's so obvious that delightful physical sensations are just that and nothing else. Delightful physical sensations. That's all they are. And the mind is clear and clean at that time, makes it a very important happening. But it's because of the mind having purity. And we only get at that when we have purity of mind. That purity of mind is one of the greatest boons that we get through the jhana. Purity has two aspects. First of all, no obstruction, no hindrance in it. None of our defilements. That's one way of purity. That's the time of the jhana. And the other way is that purity of mind brings clarity. When something is pure, it becomes clear. Like dirty windows, very hard to look out and see the scenery. When they are cleaned up, very easy to see. So, purity brings clarity. And clarity of mind is what we need for insight. Without purity of mind, there's no clarity. Purity of mind comes from diligent, continual practice. From knowing oneself, from recognizing what needs to be done. And we've gone through those stages already, which are the preliminary purifications, which I mentioned here for this sutta. Clarity is what we are actually after. Because then we can have the understanding of our experiences. And as we get this clarity, obviously we are also going to be very careful not to refurbish the mind with impurity. We are going to watch it. We are going to be careful. Because we realize what an enormously valuable joy we have that can, with its purity and clarity, break through all delusions and see the world in its absolute truth. So what this means is that in order to gain the depth and profundity of insight which the Buddha taught, we need the purity and clarity of mind, which only comes about if we can actually stay totally focused without any thinking. As long as we are thinking, we are on the worldly level and we are only knowing what is in our mind already. This is 
something new to know and exchange. As we go on, we will see the others, the uh, other jhanas that follow. And the Buddha, being a very pragmatic teacher, just numbered them from one to eight. And particularly, the first four, they don't have any names. They're just called one, two, three, four. Which actually makes it very nice. Because we don't have to imagine anything. We just have to do it. The others, from five to eight, also have names to them. We'll get to them also. I mentioned earlier that this is the natural way for the mind to go, that we have an inner yearning for it. We can find the reports written by the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages in their own terminology, but doing exactly the same thing. And this is why we have, why it's so great that we have it only numbered, because Teresa de Villa, in her book, the interior castle, giving instructions to her nuns, described seven of those um, absorptions in such a visionary way that today hardly anybody can follow her. I've talked to quite a number of Carmelite nuns, particularly because I wanted to ask them whether they realized that that's what she's describing are the meditative absorptions. Of course, she calls them prayer, but that doesn't matter. And they said that they had been reading it, but didn't know what to do with it. It's so visionary that one gets the idea that it's a particular person that can do it. Whereas the Buddha's explanation is so pragmatic that there's no way that one can think that's not for one. It's for everyone. She wasn't the only person that did it. Hers are particularly... Um, interestingly described, but uh, there are others. Meister Eckhart did them, and uh, described them totally different again. Francisco de Asuna did them, and described them actually in a much easier way. Because we're living in a day and age which has technology at its home, and not religion, it is becoming a lost art. No need for that. We can all revive it. It's available. We are very lucky position. The Buddha's words are there. And they can go accordingly. The other thing which makes it like quite clear that it is a natural way for the mind to go happens to those people who touch upon them involuntarily and spontaneously. They have no guidance, no instruction, and yet the mind does it. There are people who have done it out of great joy. There are people who have done it out of great dukkha. It's not uncommon. If there's great dukkha, the mind reverts to that. And then 
Very, very sweet and sweet because they're very concentrated. So that's another way to see that it is the natural way for the mind to go. The spontaneous arising of them. Meditation is science of mind. So it's not that luck. It's scientific. And because it is science, it's available and accessible to everyone. It's explainable and repeatable. But it has to have that other dimension in it. If we stay with the dimension that we know, and we're all familiar with that dimension very well, a thinking mind that's judging, a thinking mind that happy and unhappy, that uh, criticizes, that wants and doesn't want. We all know that one. Which is a great duality situation in which we are opposed to the world. If meditation doesn't bring with it a different experience from that worldly mind, it doesn't bring satisfaction. I sometimes think that it is extremely admirable for people to stay with meditation, and some do actually, who never touch upon a jhana. I find that admirable because obviously they can't get any satisfaction. But I've been told by one of them who was doing it for 21 years before he came to a meditation course with me. But he did it because he thought it was an exercise for the mind. Just watching the breath go in and out. That was a very good idea. He stayed with it. So, the different dimension that we get shows us that we are not really of this world. We are in it, but we are not of it. And we can actually get out of it while we are still in this body and mind. So that is the reason why the Buddha guided everyone on this path through the jhanas to the insight. When there is a discourse which goes from the beginning of morality to the end of enlightenment, the jhanas are never left out. Since we are interested in the meditative path, this is our interest. One word of warning. Please don't sit down and now look for the delightful sensation. Please do the method, whichever one you have agreed upon in your mind will be the best one for you. And as you do it, just stay with it. That's all that's necessary. <coughs>